So only the very briefest uh, recap, because I'm going to assume at this point most of you know where we're at, and I do want to give plenty of time for Q&A on this uh, issue. So uh, as we are walking through the map, uh, we've seen that the rule of faith directs us to remember that authority and leadership, whatever we determine about this, should have a Christ-like um, disposition. Um, that when we looked at the plot line of Scripture, uh, we saw at creation that women and men were both um, described as bearing the image of God, and they were both given the same vocation to care and rule for the created order. So there wasn't distinction there in the very opening chapter of Genesis. Um, with the what's often referred to as the fall, uh, where she will desire the man and the man will rule over her, uh, we said that there might be uh, two ways to hear this. It could be just punishment. you got to deal with this. Um, there's plenty of room in here. There's a few up here. Um, or uh, we could hear it as descriptive. This is the natural consequences when sin enters. It corrupts relationships. Um, and then when we looked at the, what happens in Israel with Jesus' teachings and in the church, uh, there is a kind of male dominance in leadership roles. Uh, but there are notable exceptions throughout. There are prophetesses, apostles, uh, judge, disciples, uh, women being the first witnesses. So we looked at women like Hulda, who spoke for the Lord, uh, Deborah, the judge, um, Junia, an apostle, um, and so forth. This brought us up to last week uh, when we were thinking, how can we um, make coherent sense of Scripture um, and by that I mean, how do we, how do we try to, we're, we're assuming uh, that Scripture isn't speaking in uh, kind of irreconcilable ways uh, about its witness on women in authority or leadership uh, or teaching roles. So um, I began by saying when we look at some of the texts that are sometimes brought up in the conversation, it, none of them are that clear. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 14 um, it is not entirely clear why Paul says women are to be quiet in this instance, uh, particularly since a few chapters earlier he mentions women praying and prophesying, that is, not being quiet. Um, and that uh, this can lend itself to saying maybe only men should be teachers and authority, but in the context itself where it's dealing with, uh, where Paul's already referenced women praying and prophesying, and in the context itself where it's about disruption in worship, uh, and if we know the cultural situation of that time where women were less educated, that it makes a lot of sense that he's saying in this particular situation, uh, women who are less educated, who are in the assembly, who have questions, if they would hold off so it doesn't disrupt uh, the flow of things, they can ask their husbands later. Again, you can't prove either one of those, uh, but neither, uh, 1 Corinthians 4 is not the end of the conversation. Uh, similarly, when we looked at Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. Um, I said that this can lend itself to a more egalitarian reading, but not necessarily. And I think uh, Ryan makes, made a good point that even if we move outside of the conversation of gender when we're looking at Galatians 3.28, Paul assumes uh, that even though we're all one in Christ, there are still different levels of authority um, at work. Uh, from there, we looked at Romans 16, 1 through 7, where Paul has this kind of shout-out section, and uh, he mentions a few prominent women, um, one of them being Phoebe, who is a benefactor and deacon, uh, and likely the letter reader and interpreter 
um, for uh, this original hearing of Romans to the Roman audience. Um, and so that, that lends itself to seeing women maybe in teaching and leadership roles, but doesn't prove it. Similarly, with the reference to Junia as outstanding among the apostles, uh, it lends itself to seeing women in the kind of teaching or authoritative role, but doesn't prove it. So none of these three uh, are kind of in the conversation. Uh, we might keep them in mind, uh, but we can't just quickly proof text one of these and act like uh, that's, the, uh, that's it's kind of finished. So uh, we camped out or began to camp out in 1 Timothy 2, and we'll finish that today, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. Uh, and I said, as we hear things like uh, women praying and prophesying, um, uh, Junia is an apostle, um, Philip's daughters who are prophetesses, uh, that's a hard word to say, um, and then we have text where Paul is saying things like, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority. Uh, there might be two ways that we could try to hear this coherently. That is, uh, two ways we can assume, particularly since we're talking about Paul saying both of these things, uh, that, that might be ways of making sense how Paul can say both of these and not be just incoherent. So, uh, one option that's probably been most representative in Churches of Christ uh, is to see the limitations placed on women in teaching and authority as the norm. And so where you come across those New Testament teachings, uh, where you have women as apostles or prophets, um, the assumption, to make coherent sense, the assumption is uh, that what's going on here is that the women who are teaching or apostling are doing so only with women or unconverted men. Um, and uh, this assumption is not entirely clear in the text. You can't prove that. Uh, but in a bit, I'll talk about maybe why people might have some basis or bases for this assumption. The other option is to assume that uh, the ideal or the norm would be that there aren't limitations placed on women in teaching and authoritative roles. Um, this also, notice, try to point this out, both options require some assuming. Uh, to make coherent sense. There's no escaping this. There's not a, we're the view that doesn't make any assumption, we're just looking at what's clear in the text. Neither is entirely clear in the text. This assumption is that the limitations that Paul places on uh, women, particularly those he's writing to in Ephesus, in 1 Timothy, um, and maybe in Corinth, uh, are cultural or situation-specific. That is, Paul is saying, what's happening in this particular time and place, as he's writing, um, uh, are, uh, is that the best thing to do um, is for women not to be in these roles. However, if the situation changes, uh, then uh, this does not need to be binding. So if we read a few chapters later in 1 Timothy, and we see Paul saying, like, I encourage women, uh, young widows, to get married, um, we pretty naturally read that as situation-specific. I don't know any churches that are dividing over telling widows under whatever, 50 or 60, they better get married. Uh, we just recognize, oh, that's got to be culturally specific. Uh, especially uh, since in 1 Corinthians 7, I believe it is, Paul says, in this situation, it's better not to get married. That is, Paul uh, is doing this kind of pastoral, um, culturally uh, targeted teaching in certain uh, areas. When we see it with regard to things like better not to get married or better for widows to get married, uh, we're kind of alerted. It's like we have this instinct. That's what's going on here. And so for those in option two, this is the instinct we have. It seems as though this must be situation specific, especially in light of women uh, as apostles or prophetesses or whatever it might be. 
Um, you can't prove this in the text, and so in a bit I'll look at some basis for this assumption. So that's the kind of general overview that catches us pretty much back up to where we were. So in 10 minutes or so, I'll, I'll give a little bit about this, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. Any clarification at this point? All right, I'm doing awesome then. Uh, okay, so um, if, if you're leaning towards option one, uh, that is, uh, the limitations are the norm. Uh, you might say that your basis for this assumption, because it is an assumption that's not entirely clear in the text, uh, is that you say you might say something like, this seems to be the dominant practice uh, in scripture and church history, which we have seen as we looked at the plot line. Um, and uh, one that a couple people brought up uh, last week, which we'll talk about, is in 1 Timothy 2, when Paul calls women to... Uh, to not teach or have authority, and we'll talk about the language of that, he, he points to Adam being formed first. And so uh, some people think, well, because he seems to appeal to creation order, uh, maybe that suggests this is beyond a cultural or situation-specific issue. That's not something to be taken lightly. Uh, that is, that is a, um, a meaningful kind of um, or a weighted um, uh, point. Um, and... And then you get something maybe like in Titus 2, this um, sense in which you see Paul directing women to teach other women. So maybe you get something like that there. So the basis is uh, this seems to be most common practice in Scripture and church history. Um, the second point would be Paul's appeal to creation order in 1 Timothy 2.13, uh, and maybe the example of women teaching other women. So that might, I'm not saying this is everything on that, but uh, maybe the, the high points for that. So, why might uh, some assume uh, that this is culturally or situation-specific? Well, um, as this is where I got to last week, uh, the first one if, uh, would be the reference that we've already seen to women who are doing other things. Um, beyond that, um, another reason we might see that is, um, is the way some might think of this as we're following the trajectory of what is happening in Scripture uh, to where it's pointing. So if that made no sense, let me, let me try to, uh, to say it a different way. Um, if you're wanting to say uh, that Christians should be against slavery, and I think we're probably all there. I'm not going to do a class on that. Um, Christians should be against slavery. You can't just simply go to a proof text. Uh, there is no anti-slavery proof text uh, in Scripture. Instead... Uh, what seems to be happening here is we follow the trajectory of the teachings that we find in Scripture and see how it points to slavery being obviously wrong and problematic. So the trajectory I'm talking about is uh, the way Israel deals with slaves seems to be a kind of step up from what would be the cultural norm uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world. Uh, and then when we get to the New Testament, uh, and barriers are being broken down, there's no slave or free, um, although Paul doesn't say, set all your slaves free, when he writes, for instance, a letter to Philemon, um, he talks about Onesimus, the slave, as his brother. And he calls Philemon to treat this slave uh, as well as he would treat Paul himself, the apostle. And so, um, although Paul doesn't say, set him free, specifically, because... Um, the cultural situation was just, slavery was so uh, kind of embedded. It would be like, I think N.T. Wright says, it would be like saying, everyone turn off your electricity. 
It, it was just how the culture ran. Um, so, but if we follow the trajectory, we can see that if we take seriously uh, that there's no slave or free, if we take seriously that we're to see slaves as our fellow brothers in Christ, then of course that lends itself uh, centuries later for us to be a little bit more aware of, yeah, slavery is anti-Christian. I mean, there's no way we can support this, even though we can't point to a proof text. So some who are opting for option two are saying, look, you can't just... Except perhaps the golden rule. Yeah, the golden rule. Yeah, well, the golden rule lends itself to that. Even though you don't get that proof text, set your slaves free. Which is why you had this debate. Um, So when you get people saying, um, opting for option two, there's not necessarily a proof text that's going to solidify this, but there is, it seems to be this trajectory uh, that some would point to. Uh, for example, um, that there are, um, in a very patriarchal society like in ancient Israel, um, in the ancient Near East, where you have a female judge who speaks for God, uh, or you have um, Hulda, who is a prophetess, who the king comes to and submits to her authority about uh, what God wants them to do in that instance. Or when you get to Jesus and he's teaching, um, and although he does have 12 male apostles as the kind of inner circle, you also have these female disciples who are following him, um, and Mary sitting at his feet, which is the posture of a disciple. And in that culture, rabbis don't have female disciples, and so it's suggesting there might be this trajectory pointing to something more, and that is further um, seen in things like a female apostle with Junia, uh, or prophetesses, or like in Acts 2, um, where at the end of the age, or what's the, the last days, which we're in, not as in like apocalypse, but with the kingdom breaking in, your, your um, sons and daughters will prophesy. There is a new thing happening here. Uh, so you can't prove this trajectory, uh, but those who appeal to option two say, this seems to fit if you recognize the culture and what's happening, uh, that it seems to point and lend itself uh, towards um, a move away from uh, the limitations as a norm and seeing them more as cultural or situation specific. All right, when we got in 1 Timothy 2 itself, uh, particularly verses 11 and 12, um, and if you were not here the last couple weeks, I'd really highly recommend that you go back and listen to this if you're, if you're interested in this. But what I tried to show was when Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority or she should be silent, and we'll talk about the language of that in a second, uh, that is couched in what we almost all recognize or is kind of embedded in a section that with a lot of cultural or situation-specific teaching. Men should raise hands in prayer. We don't enforce that. Women should not have braided hair, gold, or pearls. We see that as situation-specific. Women will be saved through childbearing. Whatever that's about seems to be situation-specific. So, so when we get kind of sandwiched in this, um, when the meat of the sandwich uh, is all um, situation-specific, it lends itself to saying, you know what, there's probably reason to see that as well, particularly since other of Paul's pastoral advice in the pastoral epistles seems to be like that. For instance, uh, the teaching about what we do with widows, uh, whether they're younger or older widows. Um, Cannot prove this, uh, but it lends itself to that, I think, pretty well. Um, So that catches us up to where we were. So um, now let me address... Um, the second part of this, which I didn't get to last week, when we're looking at 1 Timothy 2, and if you want to flip there, uh, if you're 
needing a little refresher. 1 Timothy 2, 8 uh, through 15. Uh, this is where Paul says, I want men to pray uh, with holy hands raised, uh, not with anger or malice. Uh, likewise, women, no, with decency and propriety to dress like that rather than gold, pearls, whatever. I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over man, but she must learn in silence, for Adam was created first, dot, dot, dot. Okay, so, um, if my first point on 1 Timothy 2, which seems to be the, the weighty uh, scripture in the conversation, at least for those who are seeing the limitations as the ideal, um, if you're leaning there, one piece of this is to recognize that it's surrounded by what we tend to view as situation-specific. Uh, the second piece of this that I might bring up is that um, cultural, um, kind of historical cultural study um, of that time, particularly looking even at the, the language and scripture, um, there is evidence of situation-specific things going on in Ephesus at that time that would lend itself to Paul saying, at this time and place, the best move would be for women not to teach. What would those things be? So evidence kind of um, of a situation-specific problem. Uh, we looked at, or I guess we didn't get here, but if you want to flip there, because um, I'm not going to go over it all right now or, or read all this, but we see that there is false teaching that targets women. You can see this if you want to look it up in 1 Timothy 4, 7, 2 Timothy 3, 6. So that in and of itself, if the false teaching is targeting women, might be the kind of situation that would lead Paul to say, right now, uh, these women do not need to be teaching. Um, we can also keep in mind that Ephesus is a place where uh, Artemis would be the kind of chief goddess of the time. Uh, and so with the Artemis cult and um, uh, the kind of the, the role that the female priestesses might have played there can create this kind of missional confusion. Can't prove any of this, but, but the... Um, but maybe Paul is seeking to distinguish perhaps what goes on in the church from what's happening in the Artemis cult. Uh, another thing we might add to this, which I've already brought up with the 1 Corinthians thing, is that women would be, by and large, less educated than men. Another reason why they might not teach. In fact, N.T. Wright hears Paul saying, let a woman learn as in and of itself a step forward. Rather than send them away, they need to learn. Uh, it's an empowering kind of move that N.T. Wright sees in this. And when it comes to studying Paul, N.T. Wright is a heavyweight. Um, this is not someone who's trying to force the text to, um, to fit his liking. Um, in addition uh, to false teaching targeting women, uh, the presence of the Artemis cult, the lack of education, uh, and even Paul saying, let them learn, uh, there is a situation going on in the Roman uh, world uh, that gets referred to as something like the New Roman Woman Movement. Um, and part of the New Roman Woman Movement was this uh, movement to throw off um, old, um, kind of traditional, uh, among the Roman world, um, kind of female, wifely uh, responsibilities. Um, and if you will notice, for instance, in uh, 1 Timothy 4.3, uh, one of these things seems to be um, uh, an anti-marriage kind of movement. And so it might make sense then, as Paul says, uh, and, or as we see in 1 Timothy 4.3, when Paul recognizes that part of the false teaching is an anti-marriage bent, 
uh, that this new Roman woman movement that can have this kind of anti-marriage piece to it is infiltrating uh, the, uh, the church in Ephesus. Um, and so this again might lend itself to Paul saying, not all women everywhere should not teach or have any authority, but given the situation uh, with this movement coming through here, um, that it might be best right now for women not to teach or have authority. We know there's part of this false teaching is anti-marriage, and this is bringing us back to that weird verse 15. It's quite interesting that one of the things that Paul says to do in 1 Timothy 2 is for women uh, to should be saved through childbearing. So that might seem like, oh, who cares about that? Uh, but uh, that same language of childbearing shows up in chapter uh, 5.14 where he advises the widows to get married and bear children. That is, childbearing can be this catchword for uh, the importance of some of these um, kind of wifely uh, practices. Anyway, none of this can be proven, uh, but there's a lot of weight that lends itself to this. I know, I still haven't gotten to the creational order thing. I'm getting there. Um, give me about five more minutes. Um, and then if we get into the language itself in 1 Timothy 2, um, when it says in verse 11, um, let her learn, and some of your translations will say silence. I think that is a bad translation. Quietness, the Greek word is asukia. Quietness is most likely a better translation because the exact same word shows up in verse 2 about having a quiet lifestyle. So Paul has already used asukia to mean quiet, not silent. So he's not calling people in verse 2 to be mute, um, but rather it's, it's about attitude. Uh, and so when that shows up in verse 11, it would seem like it's not about being completely silent, particularly since we know women are praying and prophesying in other churches, but it's about attitude. If we bear this in mind, uh, and we continue then into verse 12, Paul says um, that um, he does not permit a woman to, the language, I don't know what your translation is, but to authenteo is the Greek. To authenteo, but she should be a sukia. We've already seen a sukia seems to be more about quiet. A sukia. Uh, <laughs> is more about quiet and attitude than it is about muteness. Authenteo can mean have authority. Authenteo, which is not Paul's typical word for authority. He uses a different word typically. Authenteo can also mean domineer. If the opposite of authenteo is quietness, it suggests he's not saying, I don't permit them to have authority but to be mute or to be quiet, but rather I don't permit them to have a domineering attitude, but a quiet attitude. So this is important when we know something about the language. You can't say the Greek word means X, and therefore it always means this, but uh, the Greek word might mean X, Y, or Z. And the context helps you determine whether it's X, Y, or Z. In this case, the opposite of asukia, which seems to mean quiet, would be domineer, particularly since Paul uses a different word for authority. All right, so... What about Paul grounding um, 1 Timothy 2, uh, this, this call for creation order? Particularly verse 13. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Um, this is the hardest piece of all this. And for some, there is no getting beyond this. And I don't want to make light of that. 
but for those of us who think that there is just so much weight uh, on the side of option two, is there any way we can deal with 1 Timothy 2.13 without just plugging our ears, uh, which is sinful? Um, we, uh, I would say, yes. Uh, there are a couple ways of making sense of this. Um, one is that um, elsewhere, like in 1 Corinthians 11, 8 through 12, when Paul appeals to creation order, uh, woman was formed, or man was formed first, then woman, something like that. But he, he basically um, he starts <coughs> to make that argument, and then in verse 12 he's like, but woman's not independent of man, and man's not independent of woman. It's like he says, we can't push this too far. So Paul himself seems to say, we can't push this creation order thing too far. The second piece that some of us who lean towards option two would say about this whole creation order thing is that um, the logic is odd. For the most part, we don't apply this logic that what is created first is superior to what's created next. Less humans are inferior to what was created before them. The only place we would extend this logic, if we're following Paul, would be this one little slice Man first, then woman. We don't think plants are superior to animals, unless you're a vegan, and you can leave. I'm just kidding. Uh, just kidding. My brother-in-law's vegan. Uh, he's healthier than I am. Um, but but it's, it would be weird if we think, does Paul actually think what was created first is superior to what's created second? Um, that, is, that is a weird point to make. Why might he make that? Well, I don't know, but here is my hunch just a hunch, but I don't think it's a wild hunch. Part of the false teaching, which I haven't mentioned yet, but you get this in 1 Timothy 1.4, so I'm, I'm taking the false teaching from the Bible itself. I am not assuming this. This is in the text. Part of the false teaching is a focus on genealogies, who comes from whom, and so forth. Maybe part of what Paul's doing is saying, you want to play the genealogy game? Fine, let's play the genealogy game. Man's first, then woman. Can we just move on here? Right now, women need to be silent. Again, I cannot prove that, but maybe this is part of the reason that Paul makes this appeal. So personally, I find this a hump to get over because I lean more towards option two. I lean heavily towards option two. But I don't look down upon my nose at those who are in option one because of the basis that I've already mentioned and because this is a, um, a heavy place where Paul roots this in scripture. However, I think there are ways of making sense of that. So this brings us to where we are now and hopefully getting some uh, Q&A. Before I do the Q&A, I'm going to have someone read. Um, I didn't think beforehand, uh, so I don't really want to be the man reading this. So um, where, was, is there any ladies who would read something for me in just a second? Uh, all right. Yes. Yeah, perfect. Uh, you can come ahead and come up here. Um, so, hopefully at this point, we are recognizing our need for humility, our need to have respect for those with opposing viewpoints, and something I want us to be alert to, this has only been three weeks, but there is a danger to shortcutting this process. If we shortcut this process and just decide, you know, we're going to just simply ignore the scriptures we don't like, the danger there is it make, puts us in this position of authority over scripture. We determine which scriptures we will and will not listen to. We shouldn't do that. Um, we should also be aware of shortcutting the process by simply saying, this seems to be where culture is and this is where we should be too. 
because that has a kind of cultural elitism, a kind of um, ageism or nationalism that can be built into that. Um, and so uh, we, should, we should do this kind of longer, more difficult process. So here is a letter that Rachel Settle sent to, um, to the elders um, a, a little while back. She sent it to me, and I want uh, you guys to hear this, not because I think you have to adopt her position, but I think because she adopts a great disposition. This is the kind of attitude uh, that when we're having conversations about this that I think is appropriate. What I want you to hear is her humble tone. I want you to hear the way she gives the benefit of the doubt. Man, can we get some more benefit of the doubt in hard conversations? She gives benefit of the doubts to others. Uh, there is an openness to learn. At the same time, she is willing to voice disagreement. Uh, so... Um, being humble and being, uh, giving others the benefit of the doubt does not mean that you can't disagree. It just means we do so with a particular kind of attitude. So, if you'll read this, and then um, I will open it up to a little Q&A. For the record, my husband told me to do this. <laughs> Dear elders, thank you for the time and effort that you have devoted and continue to devote to crafting the vision for Otter Creek as we near our 100th anniversary. I know this is a huge and important task and I appreciate your leadership. I am writing today to offer a perspective for you to consider regarding women's role. Reaching out to you all is not something that I ever planned to do, but a comment from my 11-year-old daughter spurred me to write. On Sunday morning, July 28th, as the elders were gathering on stage to say a blessing over Trent Dilfer, Rebecca leaned over to me and asked, are there any girl elders? I told her no, but said that the elders' wives are very involved with their work. She gave me an incredulous look and said, well, why not? I whispered that I would explain it later. That was a light bulb moment for me. I grew up in a conservative church of Christ. I have always been comfortable with the traditional roles of men and women in the church. In fact, I wasn't thrilled a few years ago when Otter Creek decided to allow women to participate in serving communion and leading prayers. I didn't question the theological accuracy of this decision. Instead, my thoughts at the time were twofold. First, why change something that has worked for so long? Secondly, I'm a woman. I don't have a problem with the limitations on my participation. So why should we change it? Furthermore, I respect those Christians who sincerely believe scripture, like 1 Corinthians, forbids women from leading and participating in worship. I don't share that belief, but I understand how you could interpret the scripture in that way. Fast forward to today, and I am pl so pleased that our Sunday mornings include both men and women in the service. As a member of the MCC, I have seen firsthand the excellent contribution of the female members, and I think our group is better because of the perspective that the women bring to our work. Our work is for the entire congregation, men, women, and children. It is important that we, all, we have all those perspectives represented. Which brings me back to Rebecca's question. Why don't we have women elders? I honestly cannot answer that, that question for her in a logical way. The only reason I can give her is that this is how we have always done it. If I brought a visitor to church and was asked the same question, I would again be at a loss for how to give a legitimate answer. 
I believe it is time for Otter Creek to make this change. The excellent work of the Shepherds would be even better by including women in this leadership role. Otter Creek should be allowed to benefit from a Gail Shrigley or a Sandra Collins as an elder. Thank you for considering my perspective. Sincerely, Rachel Settle. So as I said, I'm not saying that you have to adopt Rachel's position, but her disposition is, uh, is pretty wonderful in all that. That humble, respectful, benefit of the doubts, uh, and honest uh, disagreement or a desire for clarification even, uh, I think models how this conversation uh, ought to go. She also models something of the recognition of the need for pastoral and missional sensibilities moving forward. Um, that is, just as Paul might have thought, uh, we operate in this case, uh, in this way, you know, whether it's widows marry or don't marry, as in 1 Corinthians, uh, that, there, that there may be reasons pastorally to move forward, or maybe uh, not to, missional reasons. Uh, what do we do with outsiders? What message does this send? And so forth. That would suggest that rather than a one-size-fits-all um, uh, approach to this, that we think about this at a local level, about what is the wisest pastoral and missional way to move forward on this. Um, so, one final comment that, if Lauren, do you have anything as our resident theologian on this that uh, we need to say before uh, that I've just completely left out? I, well, no. I was okay, interested in thinking about the, um, the piece in the First Timothy passage about women being safe in childbearing. I've heard of, I've heard this interpreted, and I'm curious what you think about this. Where Eve is a type for people who are deceived because they have not studied enough. And so um, the, the language about Adam being created first indicates that Adam had something like a longer time to walk with God, and Eve had less time, and so she was the one who was deceived. And then that she is safe through childbearing is an indication of uh, the woman bearing Christ, and hmm. it's the bearing of Christ into the world that is... And so it's like she's still saved. She's still mm -hmm. eligible for salvation. I'm just curious what you make of that. Or I, I don't, I, I, I'm not familiar with that. I don't know the kind of first century readings of the Adam and Eve story enough to know. So it might be. I think it at least represents this sense in which there's got to be a way to make sense of this, given all this other evidence that seems to suggest there is a spe situation specific. And that could be yet another maybe. I, I feel like that's kind of where we're going to end up with is, we can't fix that. We can't get a definitive answer on why Paul says this in Grounds in Creation. But there's lots of reasonable answers uh, that are reasonable enough given the weight of the evidence um, that, that points us there. All right, so I'm going to open up for questions. And I want to say, since we've got 10 or 15 minutes, that uh, this is particularly for those who have kind of traveled with us this last few weeks and who have kind of heard the larger conversation first um, so that we don't cover... Um, territory we've already covered. So what questions do you have? Yeah. So then when you start talking about this and you read in First Peter, when you talk, they, they talk about leadership, when you talk about uh, gifts, I don't say qualification, characteristics of the individual, stuff like that, it's kind of hard to read another option into that when it talks about husband of one wife, all, all those kind oh, of things Oh, like you're that. talking... Um, uh, the, uh, the elders. Uh, what do we do with elders? So if you're curious about how this might speak to the conversation about elders, again, I can't give you definitive answers on that. Um, 
here's what I would say, my kind of brief response about how this might apply. Uh, first of all, when you get um, the teaching about qualifications for elders, what is unclear from Scripture is what exactly an elder does. Uh, it's a weird thing uh, that we... We'd like to know. Yes. <laughs> we argue about who should be an elder, but we don't even know from Scripture exactly what they do. Exactly They're supposed right. to manage and oversee, but we don't know if that's the assembly, is that orthodoxy, is that it's just ambiguous. So it's a strange thing, because even here we've got, you know, kind of deacons and elders, and we don't... So, uh, kind of on the one hand, we can argue about who's in the office, but part of it is we don't even know what that office entails. <coughs> Second, uh, with regard to that, um, the, the qualifications for elders in First Timothy and Titus are not identical, right. uh, which also suggests that maybe Paul is doing something kind of doing some situation-specific wisdom. These are, these are the kind of traits you might look for to determine who would make a good leader. In a patriarchal context, it makes sense you would choose a man, and they would have these kind of qualities, but they're not like an exact checklist because you would expect them to be similar uh, in both cases. Um, also, uh, if you were to press those too far, uh, then it could be that Paul would be excluded from being an elder. If I mean, he may have been married, he may have had kids, we don't know. Uh, Jesus probably couldn't have been an elder. Um, and, uh, and so there, there are certain things that make us think, okay, we tend to, as we read those qualifications, besides the, the man piece, recognize that these are general wisdom. Uh, if you have two unbelieving kids and one who's on the fence, can you still be an elder? Most of us say, yeah, yeah, that's kind of general. Uh, and so it, there's a, uh, it makes sense that you might see um, that the, the, the man piece of that is also situational wisdom about um, who is kind of qualified. So, yeah. Expected kindness. Huh? Yeah. Because of where it was, right. All right. So, you went through a lot of Paul's mm -hmm. instructions. Is there a reason, or is there just enough other stuff within the Old, uh, the New Testament? I, just, I've, I, can, I get concerned when we focus so much on what Paul is saying rather than what Jesus is pushing towards? Right, so we just, yeah, Paul is where the conversation is centered because he's the one who gives the limitations. Uh, and so I find it most helpful to, to try to focus on Paul himself with also an ear, as we went through the plot line, to what Jesus, but Jesus doesn't say anything specific about it, but we get that kind of trajectory with him having female disciples. Uh, yeah. It comes down sometimes, I think, in the human idea of power, Mm -hmm. uh, even Ryan a week or so ago talked about well I'm just two, two rungs below an elder well, yeah. the, the elders here at least our philosophy and I think Phil and Randall and others who are in here can weigh in but our philosophy is to try and focus on the pastoral and not be seen just as a board of directors who's mm -hmm. in charge and I think Jesus he who would be greatest will be least it, you know, mm -hmm. it, washing the disciples feet the humility that comes. And so in a relationship with your wife, again, not because you want to be her servant, but because of the deference you have because she is a, someone you love and, and, and admire. Uh, and, and, you know, first time you have a daughter, like Rachel did, mm -hmm. and you see your daughter, she's intelligent, she's, she's capable, and you don't want limitations on her. Mm -hmm. uh, but to be deferential to each other I think will solve a lot of this. It's not about power. Mm -hmm. It's about serving each other uh, and, and being 
uh, and using your gifts, mm -hmm. but in a deferential way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if we if we hear the language as not you can't have authority, but don't domineer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then then it it, it kind really of drives it home. Yeah, yeah, shifts the the view on all this. I saw a hand over here. Okay, go you. I, yeah. I was going to say that. Um, what really strikes me as, as powerful is the concept of creation, be creation, and there's a new head of earth. That trajectory to get back to where it was originally intended mm -hmm. is really powerful. And, but what I struggle with is, based on my age, I have some male biases mm -hmm. that I can't undo. And trying to be able to think about that, being a parent helps mm -hmm. think about having daughters and sons. And, because that helps us to see it maybe in God's eyes. Mm -hmm. But we have so much of that that time that was so male-dominated, and we can look at today, mm -hmm. and we still see that power is so important, and nurturing is going to be second. Trying yeah. to unpack all of that is really uh, yeah. what I struggle with in this conversation. Yeah, if, if a church is to become, let's say a church went fully egalitarian, women can do whatever, it doesn't mean that that is going to solve the conflict between the sexes, uh, or it's going to solve a kind of chauvinistic attitude uh, at all. It can be a step towards it, but it's, it's uh, just one of, of multiple, yeah. And if we're still thinking in terms of power over, rather than this kind of submission and, and love for one another, then yeah, we're, we're all on the wrong foot. Yes, here, and then we'll come back here. Yeah, I read an article, it's been a while now, and I guess it would fit under option one of the framework here, that argued that the, it was situated, when the silence passages came up, mm -hmm. it was because there was a problem in the church. They were surrounded by these female religions, mm -hmm. and that Paul was essentially saying, ladies, be quiet. Let the men be leadership be leaders because God wants men to be leaders. And I grew up in that church. I, I mean, mm -hmm. all the men were back outside smoking. The, the ladies ran the yeah. church. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think of that? Yeah, so uh, another way of, of taking, of, of hearing this is that the, the cultural context might lend itself to that as well. Um, it can't be proven. Um, and I would say um, this is where the, the weight of the, the evidence as a whole tilts toward, in my view, the weight of the evidence tilts towards, toward option two, and even that appeal seems to me to fit better in option two than option one. But I can't, there is no airtight, you can't make an airtight case either way, um, but you can say, I think you can say this is, and maybe even when you see the long-term fruit of the limitations on women, it's, it's kind of long-term has this history of, of being coupled with the view of women's moral or intellectual inferiority. Uh, and so it's not just an anecdotal thing, but, but this has played itself out in bad ways again and again and again. And so maybe that's a sign that something is, is problematic. This isn't a neutral view that we're holding. Um, Cherry. I'm curious to get your opinion on, I grew up in a really conservative Church of Christ, and I've heard these verses my entire life mm -hmm. about women being submissive and the head covering and don't mm -hmm. wear jewelry and braids and um, like the whole first Timothy 2 that we were yeah. over. But why do you think that the verses in the Bible that, that refer to like 
um, the Apostle Junia and a lot of the other women that helped Jesus in his um, in all of his ministry. Like, there's so many women. Mm-hmm. Why do you think those were kind of swept under the rug? And these were like pressed up the top to teach us. So because I know there's just so many references to yeah. women in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I want to hear your opinion on why you think that's the case. Yeah, I, I don't know if I can... I'm, I'm just speculating here, okay? Yeah, I think part of it is sometimes our cultural um, environment makes us deaf or blind uh, to possibilities. And so you might even think of these as kind of seeds that were planted that could sprout when culture shifts enough to let that happen. Um, not because we go the way of culture, but sometimes... Uh, the timing's just not right. The, the seeds planted about slavery were there. Even many were blind to it, although you get exceptions like uh, Chrysostom who kind of sees there's a problem here. Uh, and then as, as culture shifts, it might be a place for that to, to take root. So sometimes, I mean, it happens now. Surely we have to be aware that our culture is blinding us to truths um, and, uh, and future generations are going to think, what were they thinking about that? Um, so, but yeah, that's just a speculation. Lauren knows history better than I yeah, do. Yeah, uh, one thing I would add to that is that there's a lot of evidence that women were playing really prominent roles in the early church, and that shifted pretty dramatically when Constantine established Christianity as the empire's religion. Hmm. There was a lot more syncretism then with pagan religion. So, for instance, like kneeling before the altar was actually brought into the church at that point. It was a pagan practice that was Christianized. So having male-only kind of clergy became a, that was one of those other Christianized practices. So uh, the woman's role was really diminished when Christianity was established as the empire's role. Okay, so the uh, the marriage, unhealthy marriage with the empire added to this problem. Which is then. to your point about yeah. culture. Yeah, that's, that's very good. All right, so I got maybe time for two more. I've seen Chris's hand up for a while. Um, what, when I look at the Genesis uh, portion of this conversation, I have two two conflicting uh, pieces. One is the order of uh-huh. creation, and the other is the consequence of the fall. Yeah. And as I as I look at both of those, um, it's hard for me to see order of creation as having caused all the turmoil between genders. Mm-hmm. It's a much easier case to say the turmoil between genders happened after the fall as a as a consequence of the curse. Uh-huh. And so when I look at these options up here and I ask myself, um, which one do I want to look God in the eye and defend? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I find it very hard to look God in the eye and say, I honestly and sincerely was trying to defend the consequences of the, of the curse to honor you as a humble servant, it seems like I would I would rather apologize for having made the mistake of trying to undo the curse in this particular way. Yeah, so what you would, um, if you're option two, you would say there seems to be uh, kind of mutual leadership roles. They're both to rule and care for creation. With the fall, that gets distorted. As Jesus overcomes sin and evil, we live in light of sin and evil being overcome. We don't carry on the consequences of the fall. If you're option one, you would say that even before the fall, there was a sense in which the roles were slightly different. 
that's a harder case to make. You have to point to something like she was a helper. She was this ezer, the Hebrew word there, and that must mean subordinate, which I don't think you can make very well because God is also an ezer for Israel. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm basically with you. I would just say there is a way to make sense of that in option one without upholding the fall. So we don't stereotype. Yes? If we believe the spirit resides in women, mm-hmm. and then we say you can't do this and you can't do that, that kind of falls under quenching the spirit. That's all just leaving it. Yeah, so um, I guess option one, people would say, I'm trying to just make sure that we don't characterize, you know, so we hear option one people might say, perhaps uh, the spirit does not um, inspire women in these roles that aren't for women. And I think those of us option two would say, well, we've listened to women teach and in authority, and it's hard to deny their giftedness. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think we are out of time. I'll stick around here. Um,